Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Liz Mitchell, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And good evening, I'm Clarence Boone. Sundown Towns, also known as Sunset Towns, Gray Towns, or Sundowner Towns, are all white municipalities or neighborhoods in the United States that practice a form of racial segregation by excluding non-whites via some combination of discriminatory local laws, intimidation, or violence. The term came from signs posted that colored people had to leave town by sundown. Entire sundown counties and sundown suburbs were also created by the same process. The practice was not restricted to Southern states with New Jersey and other Northern states being described as equally inhospitable to black travelers until at least the early 1960s. Historically, towns have been confirmed as sundown towns by newspaper articles and county histories. Several years ago, we had the pleasure of interviewing the late Dr. Jim Lowen. He was a meticulous researcher and prolific writer who authored Lies My Teacher Told Me and Sundown Towns and numerous other books and articles about race, racism, truth and history, and social justice. Before he passed away in August of 2021, he had a profound impact on many scholars and researchers, including our guest this evening, Dr. Gina Forrest. Dr. Gina Forrest is a native Hoosier and wants to help our state become more healthy, inclusive, and welcoming. She graduated from Indiana University, uh, Indiana University, Bloomington, with a Master of Public Health and a PhD in Health Behavior focusing on health inequities. She was a former chief diversity officer with the Indiana Supreme Court. And Dr. Gina, as she likes to be called, has experience working with nonprofits and not-for-profit organizations in academia. She has taught undergraduate courses at, at Butler University and Indiana University, including health disparities, public health program planning, public health administration, healthcare in diverse communities, personal health, exploring public health, and community health, and human sexuality. She is the proud mom of two young men, and in her spare time, she volunteers in her community with those experiencing homelessness and sex workers. Dr. Gina has conducted extensive research on sundown towns in Indiana, and Dr. Gina Forrest, welcome to Bring It On. Welcome, Dr. Gina. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you. Should I, uh, should I also use Dr. Gina rather than Dr. Gina Flores uh, with the MPH and, and a PhD in this and that and that? You have a no. mile long. No, mile you can just say Gina's now. fine. Gina's okay. fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, and, and just to let our listening audience know, I sat through a workshop that she uh, uh, presented for the uh, Indiana Parks and Recreation, in the, well, yeah, the Indiana Parks and Recreation uh, um, 
administration, there was a summer workshop on social equity. And she had everyone just basically in rapt attention and had us in the palm of her hand as she talked about inequities. And, and as we would say in, in, our, in our neighborhood, she went there on another number of different topics and jaws were dropping. But yet again, she was speaking truth. And uh, for that, we really appreciate all that she does. Sundown Towns. What sparked your interest in researching Sundown Towns? You know, my interest came uh, years ago. Um, I was probably 1920-ish, so this would have been 1993-94, and I was attending Vincennes University. And depending on the route that you travel to get there, uh, I would go through Bloomfield, Linton, and go in that way. And Linton's sign came down not that long or in my area, in my era. So that is just very shocking to me that I don't consider myself that old. Yes, I'm 48. But in my mind, you want to think that this happened 100 years ago, 200 years ago, not in my 48 years of being here. So that was just very frightening. I think, too, what happens is as you travel or as you go places, you always have people, Black people, that would say, which way are you going? How are you going to get there? Call me when you get there. And I can remember um, going to Second Baptist Church. And if we would travel in the southern part of the state, uh, especially in when we would get to Salem, Indiana, uh, we would duck down in the seats as we traveled through Salem. Uh, and I was I'm little, I mean, we're talking 10 and under, and just remember thinking, why are, am I, why are we on a bus, a church bus, full of people having a great time, but we are having to feel like we want to duck our heads down and not be seen as we travel through an entire city. It just doesn't make any, I mean, it makes sense because of racism, but in my mind back then, I couldn't understand it. And then I've been traveling, I commute to Indianapolis for work. I've been doing that for a number of years. And of course, the minute I say I'm a commuter from Bloomington to Indianapolis, what is the first thing people ask me? How is it when you go through Martinsville? And that's always, you know, we have 92 counties in Indiana, and we're always so fixated on Martinsville. But there are you know, the other 91, it's not like they're all inclusive either, but, for, but we stick to Martinsville. So just a, a mixture of my own experience and just wanting to know why. But then I also want to make sure that our younger generations, because I teach, I want to make sure that they understand that this happened because some students do not know that Sundown Towns is even a thing. And I don't want them to forget that this is our immediate past. It wasn't your great, 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 great grandmother. This was your mother who could have experienced going through a sundown town. Uh, Dr. Gina, do you feel that integration and, and has kind of wiped out some of the history so that this generation coming up now, they think the, the playing field is le level. They have no idea about being safe and what's really out there. They don't have a clue. I think that they, I think you're right, right? I think they don't get it to the level that I feel that they should get it. This isn't a surface thing. Our policies, our laws are so deeply rooted uh, in white supremacy that they have to understand how deep this goes. And that even if 
sundown towns might not exist now, they have to still, I hope, realize the consequences of us having sundown towns at one point, that we still live in those kinds of segregated neighborhoods. I think our students, our student age, I'm talking our 18 to 22 year olds, I don't think they, of course now I'm stereotyping a, a whole mass of people, but I would say that they, A, don't see maybe a lot of overt racism, so they think it's gone, and they are not in tune to the covert racism that happens all the time. Okay, your definition of a sundown town is a town that that says uh, either has uh, um, overt signs that says be out right. by, before the sun goes down. That's your definition of a sundown town. Correct. Because I do a lot of traveling and believe me, you mean, I see a lot of all white towns. Yes. And we don't, and we don't think of it that way. We just think, oh, we're in Indiana, you know, it, no big deal. So what if town X has all white people? We don't, it's like, I want us to think back though. Why did this happen? We have to understand our history so we can move forward and not repeat itself. So if you travel through Indiana, we can go through many towns that might have one registered black person two registered black people. That's ridiculous. We know that those roots of that go back to sundown towns. Yeah. I um I I I want to jump in as far as what you just stated that statistic and while you didn't quote an official statistic, I was told oh about maybe at least maybe 10 years ago that there is someone of color, someone black in all 92 counties of Indiana. Yes. And I don't know why that shocked me back then. I, I just I just don't know why. But now listening to this conversation, what was this a sort of a um, an offshoot of Jim Crow, sort of the last vestige of Jim Crow in Indiana? Yes, exactly. What would happen is some towns would say, OK, we're a town of 5000 people, all white people, and we're going to let one black family in maybe a brown family. Brown, the definition of brown, when I use brown, I'm not talking about complexion. I mean, those who identify as indigenous, Native American, Asian, and Hispanic, Latina. Mm -hmm. um, so black and brown people, they would say, you know what, let's have one black family live here and that's okay. Now, if there's trouble in another town close to us, we wanna, you know, we're gonna maybe make you move, but it's not surprising that there's one black family or one black person in each town because it was a rite of passage. We know that white, some white folks, especially in that time period, they wanted a black family in there because they would do the labor. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's still, but again, see, it's all these layers of racism still existing that we, we cannot forget that piece. What, what might happen? Um, and and I, I saw oh, a couple movies. I mean, I, we've probably all seen a movie or two where um, the emphasis was on uh, being out of town before it got dark. And I'm trying to remember, there's one that I watched. It was a series on Netflix, or I think it was Netflix. Mm -hmm. um, uh, something about a certain county, whatever. But it, it sort of mixed um, supernatural, whatever, with whatever. But there was this young Black couple and their father who were traveling to this county. And there was this dramatic scene where the sheriff first stopped them. Hey, where are you going? You know, everybody kind of felt in the moment what was going on. 
And then the, the sheriff had to remind them, well, you know, our county is a sundown town. And I'm like, wow, they are really about to reenact all this. So it's the race to the county line yeah. with the sun going down. And they, they, they go to the crest of the hill and over the hill is the county line and they get there. And then the other county sheriff is waiting. It's like a no-win situation. And then they just end up outrunning the police or whatever. But uh, what would go on back in the day if someone happened to be caught in a sundown town? What could potentially happen? It really depended on the county and um, how much the police or the sheriff were involved, how much the church might have been involved, the white church. Um, But the person could have just been, you know, like a verbal warning, like, do not do this again. We'll remember you. We'll remember your name. And then that threat coming the next time, it's not going to be just a warning. It could be a beating. Uh, And of course, it could go all the way to a lynching. But even just, uh, you know, going from a threat or a warning, but then it could go to a beating Uh, It could be, where do you work? I'm going to tell your employer. So you might lose your job at the other county where you worked in. Uh, It could be threats made to your family. You know, so let's say I was caught. Maybe they're now going to threaten my children. So, so many, it's it's at this levels of fear, right? This levels of uh, what are we going to do with you? So then, of course, that just builds up that fright in black and brown people to remember that we've got to get the heck up out of here. We cannot stay here. But like you said in the movie, there's sometimes that there's no escaping because both right. counties might be right there. You, you mentioned it could be uh, law enforcement involved or it could be the church. Explain that. Sometimes the church might jump in and say, okay, you know what? We don't want another murder. We don't want anything bad to happen. You know, maybe that pastor would jump in on someone on that black person's behalf and say, let's just let them go. We've not seen that person before. And they would just say, okay, you're fine. Just go. But I don't want to see you again. Right. The pastor might've been nice to save your life at that moment, but you know, keep in mind, he, he will remember you for next time. I find it interesting, Dr. Gina, uh, specifically, uh, let's talk about um, uh, Martinsville, Indiana. I had done research on Martinsville, and at one time they had the third highest Black population in the state of Indiana because of of the uh, Artesian Springs, and they had two spas dedicated to people of color. And then that went away. And then for so many years, they had one black man living there and they have a park named after him. And then there were no black people. I I don't know or can't remember exactly what happened. Uh, The Springs went away, the black community went away. And uh, I, I don't know if they were ran off or what, but what I do know is that across America, black communities were highly successful. Black neighborhoods were highly successful and white communities were jealous of that. Yes. And what they could to disperse those neighborhoods, burn them down, run them off. And pretty much with the same accusations that they were messing with some white woman. And usually the white woman they were accused of messing with a dogwood woman. So, <laughs> I found that very interesting. 
It is very interesting, right? But imagine, right, we have to go back. Let's go back to the 1800s, right? Let's go back before Lincoln. And we're, it's enslaved times and white folks are, they're benefiting, right? From an economic point of view, they're benefiting from slavery. And so you can imagine where from the white perspective, this is how I, these people take care of me, right? Like I have a maid, I have a nanny. I don't even have to breastfeed my own baby. Um, Don't, don't get me started on that part of this, right? Uh, And then working out in the field. So it was just this economic thing. Then imagine, you're right, Lincoln coming. Lincoln's a whole nother story, right? That we think that he was all that. And he he really was, oh, we'll pause on that part of the story. But now he's here. Yes, we, you're right, we're done. Civil War is over. Now think of that period in time though. How some white people would have been in this frightening period of, wait a minute, here I am a white family. I just owned 10 slaves, 50 slaves, 100 slaves. Now they're free? Uh, No, we cannot have them congregating anywhere, right? There was, uh, it's usually a group of three, three or more black people standing outside of a store would be considered a congregation and they would be asked to move even if they weren't doing anything they were standing there just like the three white people but because they were three black people uh, and then later on in history three brown people guess what that was considered a menace and now we've got to disperse them so we don't want them but think of how we use that same language today imagine if the three of us were walking anywhere in Bloomington or whatever city, and we saw three people, forget color right now, three three males hanging outside of a store. One of us would probably say, what are they doing? They're up to no good, right? Even though they're just standing there, but it's from this mentality that even it's ingrained in us to think there's three people just standing around. You look lazy. You could be doing something that's not intended. I need to get you dispersed. So I don't want us to forget that a lot of our terms and the things that we think of are all steeped back in that mentality, and we still do it today. As, yeah. a, black, as a black male, I have worked a number of different job settings in Monroe County, uh, and I don't have time to go through a long resume. I mean, I have. I have worked multiple different various locations, and there have been frequent occasions where if me and two other black male colleagues are coming back from lunch, that say a white coworker, usually a woman or maybe a male, might say, "Uh oh, here comes trouble." Really? Yes. Think ask about her, where ask, they got ask that. Ask your husband if he's ever experienced that. Oh Uh-oh, yeah. Here he comes. Can you stories. <laughs> yeah. Here comes trouble. Yeah. And, and and it's it's one of those things where everybody kind of chuckles and laughs it off, but that's rooted and steeped in something else. I think it's a a subconscious trigger or something yeah it's, and, it's white supremacy and it's like oh here comes it's like the three or more rule uh, yep. you're, you're congregating oh it, it can't be up to any good or whatever that's why we think about the sundown town 
places would let one family in or one individual, but we're not going to have two or three families, right? Because those two or three families would then could do what? They could get together. They could have evening meal together. They might form a church. They might want to do things as a congregation of people. No, we're not going to have that. We are just going to limit it to one Black family or one individual. Well, uh, Claire, uh, go ahead, Claire. I was going to say that we're, we're up on an ID. I just want to get this out of the way real quick. Yeah. Uh, we want to uh, thank our guest. The voice you just heard was Dr. Gina Forrest, uh, who is joining us this evening to talk about her extensive research into sundown towns and of all places, Indiana. Uh, they were all through the South. And as we noted in our introduction, even as far north as New Jersey and other communities, uh, sundown towns were prevalent. And sometimes they were subtle, sometimes they were very overt and their messaging as far as Blacks, uh, you don't want to be around either uh, at when the sun goes down or we don't want you residing here. But uh, we want to thank, we are thanking her for joining us. And Liz, you had a question that you were right in the middle of asking. Um, I, um, uh, Dr. Gina, maybe you can help me remember. I know in the introduction here, I mentioned um, the, as late as, or, or early as the 60s or late as the 60s, uh, some of the towns bragging about uh, not having blacks uh, stay overnight, that they had to be gone. Uh, the last conversation I had with uh, James Lauren, we had talked about an alarm going off as late as 1995 uh, in a town that bordered Illinois and Indiana. I can't remember the name of the town. Maybe you do. It was still going off in 1995, telling Blacks to leave. Uh, Elwood, as late as the 2000s, 2005, didn't have Blacks. Are there any other towns that you know of in the 2000s that bragged, had bragging rights on not having Blacks and didn't want Blacks to settle? I, I'm sure I do in my papers somewhere. I don't have them memorized, but <laughs> there are some. There are definitely some in Indiana oh, that yeah. went well into the 2000s. And the alarm that went off, if you're not familiar with that alarm, yes. Can you imagine that someone in your town actually thought that we have to set up a, a, a system to make sure Black and Brown people are out of your town? What? But it, it's just too much. It's too much. Yeah. I, uh, we, we have talked about this on uh, previous shows. Liz, I think you, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but correct me, you may have in your possession an actual authentic green book. Yes, I do. That was used to uh, safely help Black families navigate the United States. Of and America. You can, can you describe what this book would do? Maybe it could save your life? It was developed by Robert Green, who was a postal worker. Um, if my memory served me correctly, he was, he was, uh, worked out of a post office in New York. He contacted postal, black postal workers across Indiana, and they sent him information about where you could stay. Black folks could stay, uh, throughout uh, America where you would be safe. Those places were fabulous. The Wadi Hotel in French Lick, Indiana was one of those places you could stay. People seem to think our places, Black-owned places, were trashy and, and, and big, bug-ridden, but they were not. They were gorgeous. The Wadi Hotel was gorgeous. 
Uh, you can get good food. Um, they were safe havens. You had to know where you can go uh, to get food, where you can get gas, where you could sleep. And this book gave you that information so that you did not end up in a sundown town, so that you did not end up being beaten or lynched as you traveled. Black America in the late 30s and 40s, they started having cars. Those that participated in the great migration from the South to the North, they started working in factories. They started making money. They started purchasing cars and they wanted to travel too and were able to do so. And we needed to travel safely. And that was the way to do it was with that green book. And you, and you probably packed a big lunch bag, a big lunch basket. And I hate to say that if you had to stop by the side of the road, it wasn't to admire the daffodils. It was, it was for something else. But nevertheless, you had it in your mind that we are going from point A to point B and you were strategic uh -huh. in, your, in your mapping. Yeah. And the road atlas was your friend. And yeah. This was long before cell phones, long, even probably before long public before phones. Yeah. Um, so this is, wow, this is, this is truly an eye opener. I met a, a, a lady just a few weeks ago. We had a, a bunch of women got together and I met a lady that uh, was born and raised in California. A wealthy black, she come from a wealthy black family. And this is the first time I've heard about this, Clarence. They had, and she still has it from her grandparents. They had a beautiful handmade uh, porta potty, a travel toilet that they took with them. And I'd never heard of that. Wow. And she, it was passed down to her and she still had it. She had a manuscript that her great her great grandfather had written, and and but like I said, they had money, and so uh, and she talked about how they traveled, black folks with money, and that was interesting. It was different from middle class and poor black folks traveling, mm -hmm. uh, and and the black folks from Martha Vineyard because that was all black, mm -hmm. and and so how wealthy people, uh, black wealth. The black elite, that's a different story than the black poor traveling. Mm -hmm. well, that's another story in itself. Most definitely. Mm -hmm. I, I just recently, let's see, this was in last year. I mean, just recently as last year, uh, we were going, I had to go to a conference, leaving Bloomington, going to French Lick. And on my way there, I'm, I was in Lawrence County. And I'm, you know, driving down 69. I'm, I will admit I was speeding. So I'm, you know, I'm going, I'm singing along, having a great time. Right. And this uh, truck pulls up behind me and he has his windows down and he's, I mean, he's so close to my bumper. I can't even describe it. He starts calling me the N word. He's calling me a B. He's telling me to get out of his County. He's telling me to go back to Africa. This went on for about five miles and Finally, he turned off. I mean, I my I mean, I was white knuckling the the steering wheel, thinking, okay, either he's going to turn or this could be the end of my life, right? And I don't think people understand, right, that certain that black and brown people's lived experience is so much different than white people's lived experience. And when I finally reached my destination at French Lick, 
course I'm exhausted, right? Like I'm, I'm tired because all of my energy was thinking I'm going to die and just trying to stay on the road. And what do you do, right? It's the, it's, it's in that moment. What do you do? Well, I still had to go on and present and do my job, but traveling to certain towns, even certain quadrants in Indiana, I've always felt like you could divide India, Indiana up in maybe six to seven different types of racism, depending on where you are in the state. So, you know, uh, that Southwest corner being like Evansville, French Lick, Vincennes, that kind of racism feels a little bit different than the Bloomington, Martinsville type of, of uh, racism versus the Bloomfield, Linton uh, type of racism. So I think it's, we have to remember again, going back to that history part that all counties take on the feel of who was there and who lived them and, and who sets those rules and those laws and those policies. So even though we might not be still in the overt times of get out of here, it's still those covert times of certain policies and rules to segregate and to get that separation. They're still there and we mm -hmm. cannot act like things are just rosy because it's 2022. You know, I think of uh, the, the evolution of some of the laws. Um, you know, we have vagrancy laws that someone told me the history behind just the concept of vagrancy laws. Oh, yeah. It, it was if, if, you know, this, this perception of, of a black male or a group of blacks just sort of loitering around, then they could be deemed vagrants yep. and then hauled off to do an, uh, an overnight in a jail. And probably be tortured or whatever you know so it, you know you think about history and you know the media and television have done a lot to sort of whitewash a lot of things uh, you mm -hmm. don't really get accurate stories every now and then you get a movie that uh, just shocks america wins an academy award because of its realism well it's it you just you just did all the whitewash and told it as it was as a true story uh, yes true story. in your in your workshops uh, and you do a lot of training you do a lot of um this awareness raising the responses from your participants. Cause I sat through one you just recently did and I saw the, re the, re the, re the responses on the faces of a lot of people and they got visibly uncomfortable, but yet it was true. Mm -hmm. But then as time went on, people relaxed and then they began to really ask questions. And there were some, some opening, well, there was some uh, revealing of, of just, some real situations there. Cause as we sat there, one was almost brought to tears. If not, I think she did start crying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. with us, what goes on typically in your workshops? Um, that happens often. Um, people will attend a DEI training and, uh, and can, can you explain what DEI is? Sure. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, or cultural awareness, whatever the tagline is, or, you know, what we want to call it this, this time, but, um, DEI training, some people you're just not aware, right? So my analogy when I think about DEI training is a math book, right? Some people have never opened a math book. Imagine that kindergartner, you've never opened a math book. It doesn't mean that kindergartner is stupid or ignorant. It just means they've never opened a math book. They're not aware that this even exists. And that's what we can think of when we think of white people. They might not understand what black and brown people go through, even though they're the ones setting the laws, putting us there. Some white people don't get, oh my gosh, this is connected to this and this. So it's a lot of eye-opening that happens. But 
if you think about this continuum of learning that we all should be on, right? Do, can we acknowledge that there is a math book? Can we acknowledge that we all have a different lived experience? If you cannot acknowledge that, there's no hope, right? If I, we have to acknowledge that we all have a different lived experience. I think of myself, I have two sons, I was very active in their school and um, all of that. I was, you know, you know, wanted to be that great mom or whatever, but it wasn't until a friend of mine had a child and that child has Down syndrome that I realized all the things that she went through. So it wasn't that I was trying to be mean or anti-Down syndrome, but can you see that I, that wasn't my lived experience? So I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. And so that's how, where some white people and black and brown people can be on their journey of learning and understanding racism, white supremacy, is you have to start at the very beginning to understand that lived experience. From, from your um, experiences, from your training, from your education, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this, I'm going to set it right before you. What is happening in America today? <laughs> Um, what's happening right now, I think we have, uh, I'll say three groups of people. One group is on the white supremacy side, and they're the ones that are going to clearly shout white people are at a threat of being discontinued. We need to protect our white people and they're frightened. We have the group in the middle, the the, the do nothings, right? They're, they're the people who are just like, well, I'm fine. I don't have to learn anymore. Then we have the, the third group that there are activists, right? They're the ones that get this uh, and they want to make a change. They don't want history to repeat itself. They're going to be the, the ones on the front lines changing. So I think right now in America, we're just, we're repeating history, right? It's almost, I wasn't there in the sixties, but I feel like we're right back there where we were almost having to, to fight for rights that we've had at one point, And now we've got to do it again and again. Why do we have to keep doing this again? Well, because we're so deeply rooted in those white supremacy laws, policies, thinking that we don't even see that we're repeating ourselves again. So here we are repeating ourselves again. So you think uh, by changing laws and legislation, that's, that's the start or what is your, not remedy? I mean, I dare wouldn't ask you, what's the solution? Uh, but if you have a solution, we'd love to be the ones to break that story. Well, of course, I'm going to say uh, education, right, is the key. We have to know we have to know our history, but we have to know the accurate history. Uh, and again, we can learn that history at different ages, right? You wouldn't have to go into a kindergarten classroom and tell a five-year-old, hey, um, Native Americans were murdered by Christopher Columbus. Well, of course, they're only five. They don't need to know that. But could they at least know the truth that it wasn't a party either? Yes, they could. We could tell an accurate history at an appropriate grade level. So when they leave as a senior in high school, they're still not brainwashed that Thanksgiving was a party and that everyone loved each other and we had turkey. We still have people graduating high school today that, that some people will actually think Thanksgiving was a party, that being enslaved wasn't that bad. You were eating, weren't you? You had a place to stay. You still have people that think this way. Well, we're only going to stop that if we have education. So for me, it's all in education. Mm -hmm. I, I have a uh, re response, but I'll let Liz go first because I want to frame this question. It's uh... <laughs> Well, you think about how you're going to frame that yeah. because 
I've been thinking how to frame this one. Um, I'm scared. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, How does democracy fit into all of this? Or does it? Does it? No. Of course it does, right? I mean, we live in the United States of America where um, democracy is is there, right? But mm, is it? We still have to go back to our history. It's not for all, right? If we go back and look at the what our founding fathers, what they wrote, they weren't thinking about black and brown people. No. So if our history and our documents aren't written with us in mind. Hello. How can we think that they're thinking about us now? It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, even if we move this and have another analogy, if I'm not thinking about ice cream, right? Like why would I treat my my employees to ice cream? I'm not thinking of it. I have to think of it. I have to be intentional with my policies that I write. I have to be intentional with the rules that I set up with an inclusive lens to say, who am I excluding? Am I excluding black and brown people, those with a disability, those in the LGBTQ community, those with an intellectual disability? Am I doing that? If so, I need to go back and rewrite that. But we don't have that from our founding fathers. I mean, George Washington had slaves. So he wasn't thinking that we were equal. He owned people. Thomas Jefferson, oh, they own people. So if those folks are owning people, where was their mind when they were writing things like, oh, yeah, let's do this and that? It was not about us. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Clarence. Well, okay, here we go. Um, I, I love I love your the thought of you saying that education is the answer, but you try doing this in Texas and Florida, you might be arrested. You would be arrested. And yeah. critical race theory is not to be talked about at all. Which again, there's no school ever teaching critical race theory, right? Like that's a master's level course in college classes. No, no, no it's not. It's an elementary school. That, <laughs> no, that's why school no, board meetings not. are are bum rushed and. And, and there's shouting matches and, and people are fighting in, in, the, in the rows because you dare want to teach about the fact that there was, there was slavery in America. Right. It and never the truth. existed. It, it never existed. Right. We are so afraid of the truth. We don't want what oh. happens. A lot of this feeds into the concept of nostalgia. And we have this, this feeling of nostalgia in a lot of things that we do. And it's so hard to leave that. So imagine you were raised thinking that Thanksgiving is wonderful. It's a time when family gets together. You have great food, which is fine. But do you still know the true history of Thanksgiving? To me, you can do both and be okay. It's funny you use Thanksgiving. Just yesterday, I was listening to PRX on, 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 on XM. And they were talking to some Native Americans. And some of the elders in the Native American community uh, one was remarking that he was once asked by someone, oh, aren't you looking forward to Thanksgiving? <laughs> We're going to have a wonderful time. And he looked at him and said, yeah, I'm thankful that my crops are growing. Yes, I'm thankful for this, that, and the other. But Thanksgiving to me does not mean the same as it does for you. And okay. that's that disconnect. How That's when we will change things. It's right. that disconnect that this person can still think that Thanksgiving is fine and great. And I want you to, I want you to celebrate and have a good time with your family and have time off. But for you to have the assumption that everyone thinks just like you do about that, that's a problem. One more follow-up. Should our president try to launch a national conversation on race? 
the very thing that Bill Clinton tried to do before the um, <laughs> that, the, the big bomb of uh, Monica Lewinsky came out. That was a timed uh, revelation, by the way, because he was really pushing for a national conversation on race. He wanted to have the talk. And uh, John Hope Franklin, he had sort of t- uh, pin- uh, pointed to to kind of lead this conversation. Now, I know Biden just gave a very passionate uh, address to the nation about why can't we get along, you know, evoking the late Rodney King. Uh, why can't we all get along? Can't we love one another? But I'm thinking, OK, you're going to have to go further than that. Does he go into let's have the national conversation? Let's talk about it. Let's put it on the table, because when he ran, he did cite the fact that they were walking around with tiki torches. Uh, you know, assailing the Jews and anyone else that wanted to replace white people. And he ran on that platform that he wanted to make a change. So does he launch into that now? You know, there's, I'm torn with that question. There's part of me that wants to say, of course he needs to. That's why people, some people I'm sure voted for him because of what he stood on. And that was his, that was part of his messaging. So sure, he needs to be accountable for that. The other part of me says, no, haven't we talked about this enough? I'm tired of talking. What's the action? Do something. We have, there's so many things that we could instantly do uh, that we don't need the president for. (laughs) We don't need someone in that high of a power to change what's redlining in in our local town. We don't need the, we do need him, but I hope hope that makes sense. I'm I'm torn. Mm -hmm. I'm torn. I think if we would just have more action by people who love to say they're an ally and really they're just saying things an ally means you're in action right i want to see people move from oh yeah i have one black friend to saying i want to help i want to change things i want to even if it's just it, we're in your own little circle you will change things just think if every white person right now was at their own place of work and they challenged their supervisor or their hiring manager to let's look at what, what's the percentage of black and brown people who are employed here? What are the, what's the percentage of black and brown people who were fired? Let's look at the black and brown people who have given notice and no longer work here. Those are things we can tackle right now. We don't need the president. We can just make policies and changes and stop being discriminatory to black and brown people. Yeah. Do you have a follow-up on that? Yeah, I I don't see a national conversation happening any anytime soon at all. I think those conversations can start locally. I think most of your power and what needs to be done needs to be done locally and branch out from there. That's why I think local elections and all of that stuff are much more important and powerful at the local level. Um, and so I, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that, Dr. Gina. And um, I'd like to get back to the, let's talk about the beginnings of sundown towns, especially here in Indiana. Can you give us some history on that? Okay, well, think about right here it is, Indiana. Some people would imagine that we're in the North. So of course you're welcome. Come on in, right? Come on up here, leave the South, we'll take you. Of course, that was not the the truth. We were uh, just as racist as any other state in the union. Uh, We just happened to be 
north in our geography. Um, it, but it's the same pretty much in every state. Here you are, some white people are gonna have that fear that black people are gonna take over, that they're gonna, um, the repercussions of being owned and all the things that happened to your family, that they're now going to retaliate. These newly freed slaves will retaliate. Wow, all of these fears and all of these things are coming in. Well, what are you gonna do? Can you imagine being a town of 500 white people and you're afraid, you're literally afraid that you're, you're, you're doing normal things. You go to work, you're tending to your family. And now you hear that black people are doing this great migration north. What can we legally do to make our neighborhood and our county, our community white and stay that way? Well, that's what happened, right? It, it, I hate to say it, it was that simple, but it was that simple. It didn't even take like an act of Congress. It didn't take anything for people to just band together to say, okay, here's the rule that I want in our town. I say that we have one. Uh, let's have one family. Let's have one individual. And it really just depended on where they were in the state, what that one county or community thought of. And then, then that, they designed those rules around that. Yeah. So now here you are. Now let's jump ahead, right? Lincoln's gone. We're in, right? Like Lincoln's gone. Now we're in, um, uh, jump ahead a little bit more. We're in like the Jim Crow era. Um, Sundown Towns at their height was, I think, 1970. Again, 1970? That wasn't that long ago that we, this should not be a thing. I was born in 74. In my mind, this should be like an 1870 thing, not 1970. But now here we are in Indiana. Well, well, okay, let me back up. I jumped to the 70s. What was Indiana doing in the 20s? We were one of the leaders in the Klan, right? Oh, yeah. Remember that? We were oh, yeah. just, we were all that in a bag of chips when it came to Klan membership. Well, of course, that's going to help how Indiana was shaped and formed because we had this history of, Clan, clan being in the legislator, clan members in the all the decision makers, those in power. Dang it! What else could we do, but be a state that symbolizes and a state that still has the effects of all of that kind of history? I. Uh, that, oh, I, let I, me one follow-up question. Mm -hmm. um, do you happen to know? The cold words, Gina, that in real estate to keep blacks out of residential areas. Well, some places, depending again, if it was um, very over, they would just say no black people allowed. But some places would say, oh gosh, that's a good question. I can't remember the answer. But some places people would actually say things like, um, we want to have a, a good Christian Caucasian society, uh, community. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to keep things, um, usually they would tie it to Christianity, even though black and brown people were Christians, but we knew the code word Christian meant white. Um, okay. so we, we oh, want okay. we want a Christian community, wink, wink. We want a Christian Caucasian community. I heard um, they use the words clean. Well, clean, most definitely. Yeah. We want clean. Yeah. Disgusting. We're it's yeah. just disgusting. Uh, when we moved into our house in 81 into this neighborhood, uh, of course, we had trouble with banks. Uh, 
there was one particular uh, real estate agent that went to the elderly white people in the neighborhood trying to drum up business by telling them that the neighborhood was going to turn black and he would help them move because we were here and that was the indicator that they better get out get out now because you know yeah. if we have too many black people but, you know yeah, your property's going to go down and yeah, yeah that's that's what he that's what he said <laughs> Disgusting. Yeah. Disgusting. Yeah. Go ahead, Clarence. Well, if you, if you just joined us, we've gone long over uh, the point of an ID, but I want to get this in. Dr. Gina Forrest is our guest tonight. She's a native Hoosier. And uh, one of the things that she's striving to do is she's trying to help our state become more healthy, inclusive, and welcoming. Uh, she's a graduate from IU Bloomington with a Master of Public Health and a PhD in Health Behavior focusing on health inequities. And she was a former chief diversity officer with the Indiana Supreme Court. Um, two things I wanna do right now. We talked about Jim Lowen in the beginning and Jim Lowen was a meticulous researcher as we stated, but he has compiled a, an impressive uh, webpage where you can go and click and see uh, some of the history of cities in your particular state. And for Indiana, if you would like to, you know, take a look at and just sort of reference some of the things we've talked about this evening, go to www.justice.tougaloo.edu forward slash location forward slash Indiana. And you'll see um, an array of uh, many of the cities in Indiana and in various counties and just click on a particular city and it'll give you sort of an historical perspective on things that were reported, things that were rumored, um, uh, accounts in newspapers, and then even comments from residents from that particular city. So I encourage you again, justice.tougaloo.edu. That's not boogaloo, but that's justice.tougaloo.edu forward slash location forward slash Indiana. And, our, and again, our thanks to Jim Lowen, may he rest in peace for and all the good work that he did to just open up the eyes of people as to, as, as he said in one of his books, the lies my teacher taught me. <laughs> Another point that I want to bring out is, is and Gina, you don't, you, don't, um, you don't hide the fact that you've been in discussions with people who hold different beliefs than you, and uh, you've had a long time um, sort of a friendship, uh, a, a sort of mutual acquaintance with a gentleman who aligns himself with the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. Can you share with us how you met some of these interactions you have? Mm -hmm. uh, do you feel that you both are being benefited by such an acquaintance? And just to share that with our listening audience. Most definitely. Yes, we met. It will actually be uh, nine years this October. Uh, I was driving uh, from Indianapolis to Bloomington. I stopped in Martinsville Walmart. Um, and I know some people will say, why'd you stop there? Well, <laughs> I do like that Walmart. It's clean and neat. Uh, and it's easier for me to get there than it is the Bloomington one, but that's a whole nother show. Uh, but I stopped there. I'm in the vestibule there where you get your cart. And this man comes up to me and he calls me the N-word. And he says, hey, you're up in. I'm in the clan. And I have some questions. Can you answer them? And I paused for a minute and I said, are you going to kill me? 
And he said, no, don't be ridiculous. And I said, hold on, your people kill my people. That was an okay question. And he's like, no, I just have questions. Are you going to answer me or not? And I said, why do you have an attitude, right? So then I realized, okay, Gina, hold on. You're in Martinsville. You're arguing with a member of the clan. Shut <laughs> up, right? Like stop talking. So um, I said, sure, what's your question? And his first question was, what's it like to be an in? And I said, okay, if I'm going to talk to you, the first thing is stop saying the N word. Uh, you don't have to say it, stop it. And he said, okay, what's it like to be, what do you want me to call you? And so I said, how about a black woman? And he said, okay, what's it like to be a black woman? So I said, well, that's really a stupid question, but I'll answer you. Um, and so I just said, well, this is what it's like. It's the same, right? Like I'm, I, I, I'm a human, I'm a human being. And then we go on and talk for a few more minutes. Then he had a question about the LGBTQ community uh, because in his mind, in his world, um, we didn't talk about those things back in my day. And so he felt like they should just go back in the closet. And so after about 20 minutes or so, his wife and his two kids who were there in the same vestibule, but a little distance from us, um, the wife's like, you know, come on, let's go. And he's like, oh, okay, I need to go. Um, but what if I have more questions? Can I call you? And I said, Oh, if I give you my number, are you going to kill me? <laughs> He's like, no, stop asking me that. And so I gave him my number and didn't know if he would really ever communicate with me or not. Uh, but it was probably a week or so. He texted me and said, whatever was going on in the news at that time, he said, I need to understand what's going on from your liberal left-wing manner of thinking. And I said, you don't know how I think you're assuming because I'm in the black community, I'm liberal and left, right? Like just his thoughts were just bizarre. And so I said, okay, let's talk. And we talked the next morning for an hour, uh, on my way, on my commute. He also commutes to work. So that's usually when we speak, uh, whatever happens in the news, he wants to talk and, and figure it out or, help him see what I see. And then he helps me understand it from a deeper level. Uh, so he has uh, heard every training that I've ever done. Uh, he will give me feedback if I say something and he'll say, mm, you might want to word it this way. Cause uh, if I were in your training and you said that I would walk away. Um, so I, I, I listen to him because my goal is education and I don't want to lose people. I want to keep you engaged. So you learn more. So you're more aware. So I would say we both learn from each other. Um, as much as I think I'm right, of course he thinks he's right. Uh, so it can be very frustrating. Uh, we have rules about our, our conversation. Um, it took a while, probably two years for him to stop saying the N word. So now he, he doesn't say that as much. Um, but that's us. Okay. In, in our, in our workshop recently, you shared that story. You even shared that at times that has gotten so contentious that you just hung up on him, called oh. him an idiot and then hung up. We do. Yes. We, and he will do the same to me. We will hang up on each other and say, I can't do this anymore. What you're saying is just asinine and I'll hang up, but he'll do the same to me. And then we'll come back together and say, okay, I'm more in my right mind not my emotions. Tell me what you're thinking. I want to understand you. And of and, course, for the most part, I can't understand him. And you have pseudonyms for one another to kind of keep that separation from maybe trying to build something closer uh, by default. Or, or I mean, this has to be an earned and safety and, and safety. safety. 
yes do you think you're you're helping him i do think i'm helping him i i believe that he's changed i i I don't think that anyone would want to engage in conversation if they didn't want to learn something and so i I, i'm could be wrong but i believe he has changed uh in that he's according to his word and i'm going to choose to believe him he's not violent anymore Mm -hmm. Uh, his children aren't members Uh, so for me that's a win yeah well you know it's interesting i hate that we have to end on this because time has gotten away but you've now opened the door for another uh interview uh going a little bit more in depth because you know your your field of study is in behavioral um, uh, analysis. I, th- I think it's health behavior, but yeah, health mm-hmm. but you're also studying the other side of just psychology too. So. Yes, what <laughs> makes people do and think the way they do, and what makes him tick? It just I can't I, figure it out, except I, for hate and fear. You may have been the topic of some Thanksgiving dinners over at his house. You never know. You never know. <laughs> but on that point, we're going we're gonna to have you back. Uh, but our thanks to Dr. Gina Forrest for joining us to share her research on a mul- multitude of things, including sundown towns in Indiana. A bring it on has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringing on at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address again is on at wfhb.org. And bringing on's executive producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone. And tonight's producer, uh, co-producer is Liz Mitchell. Show consultant and WFHB News Department director is Kate Young. Program engineer is Chantal LaFontaine. And our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Liz Mitchell. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.